Welcome to my Shabbat Tagadol drosha. It's obviously not Shabbos today. I gave this drosha on Shabbos afternoon, and I'm now sharing it with you, and it's a pleasure to be able to do so. It's, a, it's an interesting piece. It's a piece that's based on a Shabbat Tagadol drosha that was given by Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Rabbi Yaakov Emden, towards the end of his life, unfortunately suffered uh, tremendous financial difficulties. He went blind. He'd been, for most of his life, he'd been a businessman. He, was, he sold jewelry. He was an agent for jewels. Um, with various different uh, branches of a particular uh, jewel, I guess, business organization that he was involved in. Uh, and he funded his own publications. Uh, he's had a difficult life, uh, some of it self-inflicted, some of it inflicted by others. But whatever the case may be, towards the end of his life, uh, he went blind and he, had, he suffered from various uh, very difficult medical conditions. And uh, he, was, he, was, he, he needed money. And he published a number of svarim at that stage, and uh, two of which were uh, droshas that he gave. One of them, a Shabbos HaGod drosha, he gave during the very brief period in his life, just five years when he was the rabbi of a community. He had at that time been the rabbi of a community called Emden. It's in Germany, northern Germany, uh, and that's where he got his name. His name was Rabbi Yaakov Emden. In fact, his name was uh, Yaakov Ben Svi. That's why he's known as Yaivetz. That's how he referred to himself, Yaivetz, Yaakov ben Svi. But he was known by everybody as Rabbi Yaakov Emden because of the fact that he'd been the rabbi in Emden for those five years, between 1728 and 1733. And in 1730, he gave this drosha. And uh, he obviously had kept the notes and kept his written record of this drosha, or parts of it that I'm going to quote uh, today. Uh, and he, when he needed a bit of money, he published this Shabbos Goldrosha. It's called Drush Pesach Godel. And in fact, um, I saw that last year in June, June 17th, 2021, it, it, uh, it became available uh, in an auction. I've actually had the original. Um, here it is, this, this item here. I've actually had the original, bought it and sold it. In those days, it cost $1,000, $1,500. Now I see that the um, the estimate was four to five thousand dollars. Although I did call up the auction house, Kestenbaum, and they told me that uh, this particular copy didn't sell. But I know that there has been a tremendous increase in value, uh, interest in the Svarim of Rabbi Yaakov Emden, even those that are not controversial. Uh, and uh, this one, Drush Pesach Godel, is a very interesting sefer containing this drosha. Now, Rabbi Yaakov Emden uh, treats this drosha as if it's, uh, you know, the subject matter of this drosh, as if it's entirely original and what to, the pshat that he comes up with to, to deal with uh, the questions that he uh, proposes is totally unique. It's not entirely so. I think that he does it for dramatic effect and he's a, a very dramatic writer uh, and sometimes he takes quite uh, a long time to get to the point and he does so because he wants to build up pressure and drama uh, and he clearly was a brilliant speaker. And if I were to say this drosha, if I were to read the script of Drush Pesach Godel uh, from end to end, it would take me three or four hours. Uh, and then I would just be reading what Rabbi Yaakov Emden wrote. Obviously, I'm not going to read it. It's in rabbinic Hebrew. Um, uh, what I've done is, is I've extracted certain elements of it, uh, which I think are fascinating, and two particular uh, points that he wants to make. And then I've looked at other people, other mafarshim, other rabbis who have uh, commented on this particular problem, and I've uh, introduced their approach as well 
to answer the questions raised by Rabbi Yaakov Emden. So let's get straight into it. The subject matter of this drosha, of this Pesach, uh, Drush Pesach Godel, or the Shabbos Agol drosha given by Rabbi Yaakov Emden in 1730, almost 300 years ago, is the mysterious lapse of memory by a group of people called Bnei Becerra. Have you ever heard of Bnei Becerra? Bnei Becerra, we're going to talk about uh, in, in a moment. We're going to tell you who they are. But before I do that, I want to read you a Mishnah. It's in Psochim, and it can be found in Psochim Daf Samach Hey Ahmed Base. So you can look it up, or you can download the source sheet. It's quite an extensive source sheet for this drosha. Uh, but if you are watching this on YouTube, you'll see that uh, you can click on the link and you'll get the source sheet. Or if you're listening to this on SoundCloud, you'll see the same thing. It's a comment. You can click on the link and you'll be able to download the source sheet. You'll be able to print it off and look at it at your own leisure. And uh, perhaps some of the things which I, I will be forced to miss out just because I want to shorten them and summarize the points that I'm going to raise rather than go into them in great detail, you'll be able to look at them at your own leisure and in your own time. So, Elu Devorim Ba Pesach Doichin A very interesting question dealt with by the Mishnah, which is what happens, and it does happen not infrequently, that the Yom Tov of Pesach comes out on Motsoi Shabbos, that means the 15th of Nisan begins on Saturday night, and therefore Erev Pesach, 14th of Nisan, comes out on Shabbos. Now, why would that matter? It matters because we have a sacrifice that must be brought on Erev Pesach. It's called Korban Pesach. Korban Pesach was brought in the afternoon uh, before Pesach, and it applied to all the people who came to the Beis Amikdash. They would form a Chabura, a group of people who would have the Seder together. I don't know how many people were expected to eat from the lamb of the Korban Pesach, whether it was 10 people, 20 people, 30 people. I've never looked into that in any detail. Maybe that's a subject for research. But however big the Chabura was, one person would bring the Korban Pesach. They would go through Shechita. And the various other aspects, as you're going to see, of bringing a sacrifice in the Beis Amikdosh, and eventually they would bring it uh, back to wherever the Chabura was, was staying, and it would be cooked, it would be roasted, had to be roasted, and after it was roasted, they would eat it at the Seder. Al and they would eat Korban Pesach together with Matz and together with Maror. And to this day, we still have Seder night, but we do not have Korban Pesach. And uh, the reason we don't have Korban Pesach is because we don't have a Beis Hamikdash. Although there was a rabbi called Reb Tzvi Hersh Kalisher, who in the 1830s proposed that uh, Rothschild buy Temple Mount from the Ottoman Empire. And once we own Temple Mount, it would be possible, or so he suggested, even for people who are Tome, to bring Korban Pesach. But that's a story for another time. What happens if uh, the the day before Pesach, Erev Pesach, falls on a Shabbos. What are the laws? What are the halachas? So the Mishnah deals with that question. It's a practical shayla. And uh, don't forget that the Mishnah was written at a time, or at least formulated at a time, may have not been committed to writing, but it was formulated at a time when this was a live question. It was a real question. It was a practical question because people were bringing the Korban Pesach every year. We're going to see that the people who in this Mishnah are dealing with the problem are people who lived at the time of the Beis Hamikdash and also after the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. Elu dvarim ba Pesach doichin es Hashabbos. Shchitosoi uzrikas domoi umichui korovov vaktoras chalovov. Four aspects of bringing the Korban Pesach 
would be something that you could do even if Er Pesach falls on Shabbos. Even if the day before, the afternoon before the Yom Tov begins is Shabbos afternoon, you could nevertheless do these four things. What are they? You can slaughter it, do shechita. You can sprinkle its blood. You can clean its intestines and you can burn the fats. Those are four aspects of the carbonates of different things. Obviously, you cannot have a carbon which hasn't had shechita. That's the first thing that has to happen. But there's other aspects of bringing a carbon. And those three things, sprinkling the blood, cleaning the intestines and burning the fat, that's things that would be doicha Shabbos. In other words, on a normal Shabbos, you can't do any of these things. You're not allowed to do shechita. You can't do shechita. It's actually one of the 39 melachas. You can't do any of these things. They're not permitted. If Pesach falls on a Saturday night, on Shabbos afternoon, which is Erev Pesach, you could do for these four things. Aval, however, says the Mishnah, Tzeliosoi, roasting the Korban Pesach, Vahadochas Korovov, and the washing of its intestine, that means running water over it so that it doesn't just, it's not cleaned out of whatever's inside it, but it's washed. Einon doichin es Shabbos, that would not uh, uh, would not supersede Shabbos. You can't do that on a Shabbos. It doesn't override Shabbos. The laws of Shabbos still apply. You can't roast it. Why? Because those things can be done after Shabbos. You don't have to do them on Shabbos. You could do them after Shabbos. Okay. What about bringing the Korban Pesach, carrying it? You're allowed to carry an animal on Shabbos. You're not allowed to carry an animal on Shabbos. Uh, and you're not allowed to bring it from outside the tomb. What happens if you are staying outside Yerushalayim and you're outside the tomb, which is a thousand or maximum of two thousand amos beyond the city limits? You couldn't bring it uh, on a normal week. You're not allowed to do those things. So what could you do if Erev Pesach falls on a Shabbos? What could you do? Chatichas yabaltoi. What happens if you bring the carbon Pesach and there's a little wart on the carbon Pesach? Now, a wart is something that an expert can peel off without leaving a wound. An unwounded animal is permitted for a carbon. A wounded animal isn't. But if you could peel off the wart, a wart would actually um, would invalidate the carbon. You can't bring a carbon with a wart, but you could peel it off. And that could be something that you could do. Says the Mishnah, Chatichas Yabaltoi, etc. All of those things The opinion of the unnamed author of this Mishnah, we always assume that the unnamed author of the Mishnah is Rabbi Meir, whose main Rebbe was Rabbi Akiva. After Elisha ben Avuya, his main Rebbe was Rabbi Akiva. So he is the principal opinion of any Mishnah is Rabbi Meir. So Rabbi Meir would seem to say, and he's a, a final opinion in this, that you're not, a, you're not allowed to do those things on Shabbos. However, Rabbi Yeza Oimer, Doichin. So Rabbi Yezer now chimes into the Mishnah. He's not been named so far. So far, the Mishnah has been anonymous. And Rabbi Yezer says, actually, all of these things you can do on Shabbos, and you don't have to concern yourself with the fact that these are forbidden activities on Shabbos. It's a Korban Pesach. You have to bring a Korban Pesach on Arab Shabbos, and you treat all aspects of bringing the Korban Pesach as normal as you would do on a weekday, even though it's a Shabbos afternoon. We're going to look at the Mishnah a little bit later on. We're going to continue the Mishnah. But before I do that, we're now going to look at source number two on your source sheet, or you can just continue to listen, which is the Gemara that is found on the next Duff, and that is Duff Samach Vav Amad Aleph, about the B'nai Seira. Before 
I tell you this story. I to tell you who the Bnei B'Seira were. The Bnei B'Seira, if you look at uh, uh, source number three on your source sheet, you'll see that the Bnei B'Seira were a very interesting group of people. They were a family, a very rabbinic, scholarly family, and they're known also in the Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, as the Ziknei B'Seira. They were the dominant group of sages, of rabbinic figures. They served as the religious leadership of the Jewish people in the period about a century before the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash, during the reign of Hurdus, of King Herod the Great. And they took over from two people whose names you will be familiar with and whose names are going to be mentioned in the Gemara, Shmaya and Avtalyoin. So the Bnei Basera seems to be in a group of rabbinic scholars, very powerful, influential people who existed at the time. They were active at the time of Shmaya and Avtalion. And when Shmaya and Avtalion both died, Shmaya and Avtalion were the Nosi and the Rashbezdin of the Sanhedrin. When they died, in the Mishnah, if you look at the Mishnah of us, it looks like Hillel took over, which is true. But you're going to see this is the source of, this, of the story of how Hillel took over from Shmaya Avtalion. He was a bit of, of an outlier. He shouldn't have been the one to take over. Perhaps it should have been those of the uh, members of the family of Bnei Becerra who should have taken over. Now, the most famous member of the Bnei Becerra family, you probably have heard him, of him, his name was Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra. Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra, and it's interesting that he lived in a city called Netzivim. Do you know where Netzivim is? It's not actually in Eretz Yisrael, it's in Western Babylon, it's in Bovel. Do you know where that is today? It's actually got the same name to this day. It's in Turkey, on the border with Syria. It's called Nusebin. It's a city that still exists. It's in our town. It's not very significant. It's on the border. It briefly made its way into the headlines some years ago when a lot of refugees from Syria found their way across the border and they settled at least, or uh, they were in a refugee camp in Nusebin in that period of time, about 10 years ago. Nusebin, Nusebin is in Jewish history significant for the fact because Rabbi Yehuda ben Becerra lived there. It's about a thousand kilometers. It's about a thousand kilometers from Yerushalayim. So quite a distance. And you're going to see that that's going to be a, a significant fact that we're going to raise. But the Bnei Becerra, Powerful family, important, influential, and they had a lapse of memory. The Gemara says as follows. Ton Rabbonon, we learned in a Brysa. And this Brysa, you know that the Brysas that we have are parallel texts to the Mishnah. So when you have a Mishnah that talks about an Erev Pesach, that's a Shabbos, the Gemara will often bring Brysas in all types of situations that give us another angle another aspect of the, of the halachas that are being raised in the Mishnah. And in this case, brings us a narrative. And the narrative is, is kind of giving us flesh to the bones, to the skeleton of the Mishnah. The Mishnah just gives us a halacha, although you're going to see the Mishnah gives us a bit more as well. But in a, in a sense that this b'raisa explains to us how this halacha came to be discussed and what was discussed and the whole story about Erev Pesach and bringing a uh, Korban Pesach on a Shabbos. Tana Rabbonon. Halacha zunis alma mi Fascinating Gemara. Fascinating story. The Bnei Becerra, this significant rabbinic family, they couldn't remember the halacha of what to do if Erev Pesach falls on Shabbos. 
and they just couldn't, they were racking their brains, asking each other, what do we do? What is it that we need to do in order to bring the Korban Pesach? Do we bring it the day before? Do we bring it after Pesach has already come in? What's the halacha? At least that's the way the Gemara presents itself. That's the way that Rashi initially, very briefly, interprets the Gemara. They couldn't understand, they couldn't remember the halacha, and therefore they were puzzled and they needed to find out the halacha because it's Erev Pesach. It's Shabbos, we need to bring Korban Pesach. What do we do? So, one year, happens from time to time. The Erev Pesach fell on Shabbos. What did they do? They forgot. They didn't know whether or not uh, the Korban Pesach should be brought on Erev Shabbos or not. They didn't really understand what to do. At least that's the way the Gemara presents it. Omru. So they said as follows. They were in, a, in an absolutely, uh, the most difficult situation that they can be in because they're the leaders. Everyone is looking to them for an answer. And they don't know what to say. So they said, Is there no one who knows the answer to this puzzle? Is there no one who remembers the halacha? What do we do in this situation? Okay, we don't know. But surely there's somebody who can remember. That's what they said. To which... Um, to which the response was, Amru Lahem, the group of people around them said as follows, Adam Echad Hillel There is a fellow actually, there's a chap called Hillel, and Hillel is somebody who came on Aliyah from Bavel, and he's a scholar, his name is Hillel Habavli, Hillel the Babylonian. Do you know what his distinguishing feature is? He was the main Talmud, he was the main disciple, the student par excellence of Shmaya and Daftalion. If anybody knows, he will certainly know. For Yodea in Pesach, Deches, HaShabbos, Imlav, he will know the halacha in this situation. Sholchu v'koruloi. They sent for him, they called him, Omruloi, and they said to him as follows. He came before them. <coughs> we don't know exactly how old, how old he was. And they said to him, Klum ato Yodea in Pesach, Deches, HaShabbos, Imlav. Don't you know? If Pesach, if the Korban Pesach pushes away Shabbos, Omar Lahem, v'chi Pesach echod yesh lonu? Are you suggesting that we only have one Korban Pesach every year on a Shabbos? To which the answer, if it was between you and me, would be yes. But he wants to make a rhetorical point. He's saying, are you really asking about Korban Pesach where it pushes away Shabbos? There's so many Korban Pesachs that we bring every year on a Shabbos. What is he talking about? We have more than 200 Korban Pesachs every single year that are brought. And they push away the Shabbos. And as far as he's concerned, he can't even understand why they're asking the question. Now, do you know of 200 Korban Pesachs? No. How many Korban Pesachs are brought? I mean, it could be that more, of course, there's more than 200 that are brought on Erev Pesach. But that's not what he's talking about. What he's suggesting is that there are 200 separate Korbanas that are brought during the course of a calendar year that are comparable with the Korban Pesach and all the laws of Korbanas apply to them and they're doicheh, the Shabbos. They override those, um, the needs of bringing the Korban override the laws of Shabbos. Amrulai, minayin lecha. How do you know this? So he says, I'll tell you what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the carbon Tomid, he's also talking about the carbon Musaf. 
There's two different karbonas that you bring, shnei kvosim on a Shabbos. Shnei kvosim is two lambs. And those are the carbon tomid. You bring one in the morning, one is baboike, one is bein harabayim in the afternoon. And those two carbonas are the sandwich of the carbonas day. One is brought as the first carbon in the morning, the other one is brought as the last carbon in the evening. And on Shabbos as well, you bring Shnei Kavosim, which is the carbon Musaf, which is the extra. Musaf means extra. The extra carbon that has to be brought on a Shabbos is actually two lambs. Those are four. Work it out. How many Shabboses are there in a Jewish calendar year? It's roughly 50. And therefore, he's saying there's more than 50 carbonas that we bring on a Shabbos every single year. And that being the case, you can apply the same rules that apply to a carbon tomid and a carbon musaf on Shabbos to a carbon pesach. The assumption being that if you're allowed to do it for a carbon tomid and a carbon a musaf, then you can certainly do it for a carbon pesach. Why? Omalahem. So the first thing he brings is, is a literary reference, a, it's a word comparison. It says the word moyed. Yomtuf is, is a moed. Moed means time. It says moyadoi at its time, ba Pesach, when talking about the carbon Pesach. Benema moyadoi ba tomid. And it also says moyadoi. It says, Tavis benez rova marta lemis korboni lachmi leishai reach nichach tishmoi lehakivli bemoyadoi at its correct time. Not talking about Yomtuf uh, when it talks about tomid, talking about time literally at its correct, at its designated time. So it says, when it comes to carbon Pesach. Same word, it's a reference point for the carbon Tomid. And therefore, just as we know the Mayadoi, the Mayad of Tomid, is, uh, overrides the laws of Shabbos, so too, so now we know because we have this comparison, this Gzeira Shove, we know that the carbon of Pesach and the carbon of Tomid have the same rules. And if it applies to carbon Tomid, it applies to carbon Pesach. If carbon Tomid can be done on Shabbos, so can a carbon Pesach. That's the way he suggested that he knew, because we know there's more than two other carbonus on a Shabbos which are similar to carbon Pesach. Therefore, the carbon Pesach, the same rules apply, and you can bring it on Erev Pesach when it falls on Shabbos. And he said, and we also have what we call a kalvachaymer, an afortiori, where you use something less and something more as a form of proof, because if it applies to one, it certainly applies to the other. What's his kalvachaymer? We know that the korban tomid, if it's not brought, doesn't mean that those who don't bring it are guilty of, a of having transgressed a prohibition that will result in them getting kores, which is a heavenly death sentence. Kores is a, is a terrible thing. But a korban tomid, if you didn't bring it, it doesn't mean that you are, uh, you're going to suffer from this punishment of kores. Nevertheless, doiches ha So it's on a lesser scale. On the scale, it comes lower um, in terms of it, it's not kores. And yet, you can break Shabbos in order to bring it. It's not that strict of a carbon that it would result in Kares if you didn't bring it. And yet you can still break Shabbos. You can be Machal Shabbos in order to bring it. If that's the case, Pesach, She'onush Kares, Einodin Shabbos. Pesach is higher on the scale. It's stricter. The punishment is worse. If you don't bring a carbon Pesach, you are high of Kares. And therefore, it must be true that you can break the Shabbos in order to bring it because 
It's more urgent to bring it because you don't want to suffer the punishment of Kores. That's his Kalva Chaymer. So he gave two proofs. One, the word Mayadai, um, which appears both in Tomid and uh, it appears in Korban Pesach. And the second one, a Kalva Chaymer, where he proves that because Tomid breaks the Shabbos and is of a lesser status, Therefore, it must be the case that Korban Pesach, which is on a higher status than the Korban Tomid, can also break the Shabbos. It overrides the rules, the laws um, relating to Shabbos uh, observance. Miyad hoishivu'u baroish uminuhu nasi aleim. B'nei Sarah was so impressed with Hillel, at least in this version of the story. By the way, there's two parallel versions of the same story, one in Yerushalmi, one in the Mechilta. But this version of the story, which is a little garbled, that means it's been summarized to the extent that actually there's details that we don't hear, which I'm going to talk about later. But in this version of the story, it just says as simple as this. B'nai B'Seirah were impressed with Hillel, and they didn't have Shema and Aftalion anymore. They appointed Hillel to be the Rosh Bezim, the Nasi. Of, uh, of the Sanhedrin. And after that, he spoke the entire day about Hilchas Pesach. That's, by the way, an allusion to something that we'll talk about later. What was he talking all day about Hilchas Pesach to the Bnei Becerra? Who he, was he talking to? Why did he spend the entire day on Hilchas Pesach? That part isn't explained in this version of the story, but we'll see later on. During his drosha, his drosha about Hilchas Pesach, he started telling them off, telling off the Bnei Becerra. Unbelievable. And you know, Hillel was such a kindly man. All the stories we have about Hillel always talk about what a gentle soul he was. And here he gets tough. He tells them off, Mekantaron bidvarim. Omalohen, mi goram lochem, she'ele mi bovel ve'eyen Who is the one that caused this to happen? That I'm going to come, I'm going to go on Aliyah from Bovel, and I'm going to be the head of the Sanhedrin. Who caused this to happen? Do you know who did it? Atzlus shahoysabachem. It's your laziness. It's your fault. You were lazy. Atzlus means that you didn't do what you needed to do, and I ended up doing it. How is that possible? And that's why I became the Nasi of the Sanhedrin. Shaloshimashtem shnei gadoyle hadar. I had the honor of being able to serve the two greatest rabbis of our generation, Shmaya and Avtalion, as a result of which I am privy to all the halachas that you seemingly don't know, and therefore I have become the Nasi, and you're not the Nasim, even though you're this great family, the Bnei Becerra, Shmaya and Avtalion. He took over from Shmaya and Avtalion, says the Gemara, that he told them off, explaining to them why he'd benefited, he'd merited to become the Nasi, and they hadn't. So now they asked him a shaila. This is interesting. It's, a, it's, the, it's not quite the end of the story, but it's an interesting piece. It's a vignette at the end of the story. Rabbi, they said, Hillel. What do we do? What's that locha? If somebody didn't bring his knife on Erev Shabbos and he has to carry it, you're not allowed to carry. Not to carry on Shabbos. What should you do? And you're far away. And you need to bring a knife. You didn't bring your own knife. Uh, the, who says they're going to have a knife to do the shechita? So what should they do? So he said to them, ah, I've got the answer for you. But the fact is, even though I'm racking my brains, I can't quite remember the answer. I remember that we had the discussion. I know we came up with a psak halacha. I know that there's an answer, but I can't quite put my finger on it. However, 
Yisrael. I leave it to the Jewish people. Do you know what? The Jewish people know the answer. In other words, they're so familiar with this territory that they, they will, whatever it is that they do, I know that that's, that's the answer to the question. It will be whatever it is that Hillel uh, um, that Hillel discussed with Shmaynaftalian. We know that if the Jewish people aren't themselves prophets, it doesn't matter, because they are descended from prophets. They have it, it's in their bones, it's in their DNA. There is an element of prophecy in every Jew, and what he does carries over from one generation to his, and then uh, is given over to the next. So what did the Jewish people do? Who in Yerushalayim that year for? Uh, for Korban Pesach, that was an Arab Pesach. Lemocha Misha Pischu Tole Toichvoi Betsamroi Misha Pischei Gdi Toichvoi Bein Karanov. Two types of Korban Pesach you can bring. You can either bring a Keves, you can bring a lamb, or you can bring a Gdi, you can bring a little goat. Chad Gadyo, right? That's, uh, that's the song that we sing at the end of the Seder. So what did they do if they didn't bring their knife? Because the people have forgotten to bring their knife on Erev Yom Tov and leave it in a safe place in the base of Mikdosh. What did they do? If it was a sheep that they brought, they stuck the knife in its wool, which is thick, and you can stick the knife in it, and without harming, obviously, the animal. And therefore, the animal walked with the knife in it. Well, an animal can walk with a knife. It's kind of natural inside. And when it was a gadi, which has horns, they stuck the knife between the two horns. So that was a decoration onto the horns. And there it remained, and they came, and they could do the shechita on their korban pesach. Ro'amah and when he saw that Hillel, he knew the halacha of Omar Kach Mikublani Mipishmayon Avtalion. This is exactly what Shmayon Avtalion said as the Psak halacha. This is what you should do. If you forget your knife, either stick it in the wool if it's a lamb, or stick it between the horns of the Gedi if it's a goat. An interesting aside. So, I'm going to just um, give you a summary of some of Rabbi Yaakov Emden's questions that he, that he mentions in Drush Pesach Godel. This book that he published in the 1770s, 1775, he published it, uh, his drosha of 45 years earlier in 1730. First of all, and this is, I mean, this must have puzzled you as you were listening to this story. How is it possible that B'nai B'Seira, who were essentially the G'doy Hador themselves, I know we talk about G'doy Hador, Shmaya and Avtalian, and we know that Hillel was a G'doy Hador. But everything I've told you about B'nai B'Seira will convey to you that they were the G'day Hadar. These were the greatest rabbis of the generation. I mean, we've heard Rabbi Yudah ben B'Seira. We're not talking about nobodies. Are you suggesting, is the Gemara suggesting that they forgot this most basic of halachas, one which is brought in the Mishnah? If you're a Torah leader, you can't forget a halacha like that. It's so basic to the conduct of Jewish life. How did the B'nai B'Seira forget it? The other thing is, and this kind of folds into this first question. The second question is, you know what? Erev Pesach falling on Shabbos is not such an uncommon occurrence. Now, we have a 19-year cycle. I can't tell you exactly how many times in the 19-year cycle Erev Pesach falls on Shabbos. I know it's several times. And, uh, you know, those of us who've lived long enough have seen Erev Pesach fall on Shabbos, and we know the halachas relating, you know, it's, it's, you have to have Lechem Mishnah, what do you do? I mean, it, it's not as important, perhaps, as the halachas which are relating to Korban Pesach, but we're familiar with halachas. We quite remember, if you go to a Rav, 
you would, he would certainly remember the Pesach Halacha about how to behave on Erev Pesach, which falls on Shabbos, when to sell your chomets, how to do it, when is the Tanis Bechoyim, whatever it is. And if you go to the Godel Hadar, the Pesach Hadar, and you would ask him, what do you do on Erev Pesach? He could do it in his sleep. He could answer you in his sleep. Why could he answer in his sleep? Because he's the Godel Hadar. He knows the Halacha. He doesn't have to refer to a safe. And if you give him a chance, he say to me, you know what, if you don't know the answer right away, you can go around and look in your Mishnah Brewer, and you can come back to me. The Bnei Basera. These were the greatest rabbis of the generation. Somebody knocks on their doors. Tomorrow's Erev Pesach. Do we bring the Korban Pesach or not? They're scratching their heads. I'm not sure. What do we do? I can't remember. Isn't there anybody else who knows? We don't know the answer. To the Are you kidding me? They don't know the answer to this basic question. It must have happened before. Even if it wasn't a fixed calendar cycle, it would definitely have happened over the years that they were the, uh, the leaders of the generation or had lived in the time of Shema and Avtalion, that they would have seen an Erev Pesach falling on Shabbos. So how is it that they forgot this most basic halacha? That's what Rabbi Yaakov Emden asks. Good question, right? The next question he says, it says, They forgot and they didn't know which are two different things completely. Do you know what shochachu means? It means you forgot something that you once knew. What did you once know? I don't know. You, you knew somebody's phone number, but a few years later somebody asked you, what's that phone number? And you've forgotten. Well, you didn't remember the number. It didn't stick in your brain. But you did once know it. You can say, well, you know, 10 years ago I knew the answer to this question, but now I don't know the answer. That's what shochachu means. What did layodu mean? I don't know, and I never knew. I have no idea. I've never learned this information. I've got no familiarity with it. So what is it that was Shochachum? What was it that was Veloyodu? That's another question of Rabbi Yaakov Emden that he asks on the Bnei Becerra as, um, as quoted in this Gemara. I'm not sure I'll get to answer that particular question, but it's an interesting question because Shochachum is flowery language. It's the type of language you'd see perhaps in, in a literary piece, in a narrative written by an author of fiction. It's not something you'd find in a piece of halachic Gemara. So that he points out that the language is ripe for interpretation. The next question he, he asks is one that is incredibly serious. Did they really not know who Hillel was? Do you know who Hillel was? He came from Bavel. You remember, he hid on the roof of the Bismedrash because they wouldn't let him in because he was a foreigner. He didn't speak the language very well. They thought he was uh, some type of weirdo. And he had to go to the roof and it was snowing. He nearly froze. Shemayin Avtalin look up and they see this fellow nearly freezing in the, in the skylight and they bring him down. He becomes the main Talmud, the Talmud Muvak of Shemayin Avtalin. B'nai Becerra lived at that time. Really? They never heard of Hillel? They have to ask, Who's a person who might know the answer to this question? And somebody says, oh, I know who might know, Hillel. Really? They couldn't have thought of it themselves? How is it possible they didn't know who Hillel was? That's another question Rabbi Yaakov Emden asks. Another question he raises, which is also interesting, and which I alluded to an answer already, but I just want to, I want to verbalize the question. Why is it that as a result of this story, Hillel was chosen to be the Nasi of the Sanhedrin. Why isn't the, the, the Bnei Basira weren't the Nasiim yet? Why is Hillel designated to be the Nasi at this particular moment in time, on this era of Pesach, as a result of the answer that he gave to this puzzle that was posed to him by the Bnei Basira? It's a question. 
Surely, if he was such a worthy person to become the Nasi, he should have become the Nasi earlier. And if he wasn't worthy, and it was the Bnei Basira's right to be the Nasiim, why weren't they the Nasiim? So it's an interesting question that Rabbi Yaakov Emden asks. And finally, a question, another question that I have already alluded to, why was Hillel so rude to them? Why did he insult them? Why did he say, really, you had to get this, this uh, foreigner from Bovel to become the Nossi, and you didn't become the Nossi because you're so lazy? What was he saying to them? What is the message here? What is the Gemara trying to convey? And what are we meant to learn from this particular story as it's quoted in, in the Gemara here in Daf Samachvov Amad Aleph of Maseches Pesachim? Okay, I'm going to go back to the Mishnah. I told you before I would. The Mishnah, I, I ended it in the middle, kind of. And it actually continues with the discussion between Rebeliezer, Rebeliezer ben Hirkanus. Remember who Rebeliezer ben Hirkanus was? He was a... Uh, the, originally the Rebbe of Rabbi Akiva and became like a, 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 his contemporary. Rabbi Akiva was 40 when he started to learn and probably the same, roughly the same age as Rabbi Yezab and Hirkanus. And they were uh, two very important, very choshev people at the time of Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yezab and Hirkanus. And then, of course, there was Rabbi Yehoshua, you're going to see there's this discussion between Rabbi Yezim and Hyrcanus and Rabbi Yeshua. The two of them, Rabbi Yezer and Rabbi Yeshua, are always arguing. And uh, Rabbi Yeshua seems to be much softer in his approach to halacha. Rabbi Yezer much tougher. And there's a reason for that. Rabbi Yezer originally learnt in Beis Shammai. And only later on he shifted over to Beis Hillel. So he, maybe he carried with him some of the ideas and ideals of Beis Shammai. And he was a t- much tougher person when it came to Psak halacha. Rabbi Yezer ben Hirkanus and Rabbi Yeshua. Then, of course, you've got Rabbi Akiva, who was the Rabbi of Rabbi Meir. And you've got Rabbi Loza ben Azariah, who was uh, younger than all of these people, but became, alongside Rabbi Gamliel, uh, he became the Nasi of the Sanhedrin later on. And you also have Rabbi Tarfain, names that you're going to be very familiar with because we're going to say them when we, to, uh, when we recite the Haggadah on Seder night. Okay, so the remainder of the Mishnah, let's go through it. Omar Abeliezer. So Abeliezer has a proof for his opinion that every aspect of prohibition relating to Korbonus is doiche Shabbos, overrides Shabbos. It's a din. What's a din? A din is that it's a kalvachomer. I have logical proof. I have a svara to prove to you that it must be the case that any prohibition of Shabbos is brushed aside in favor of bringing a carbon Pesach. Which is a melocha doiches ha-shabbos. Eilu mishum shvus lo He says, let's face facts. The only one, and I mentioned it before, the only one of the aspects of prohibition relating to bringing a carbon that is a do'iraisa, that is a Torah-level prohibition, is shechita, it's one of the 39 melochas. All of the others are essentially shvus, besides for tzliya, but everything else is shvus. He says, if you're going to allow any aspect, if you're going to allow the most, sorry, the most stringent aspect of prohibition to uh, be brushed aside in favor of bringing the carbon, certainly the ones which are lesser should be allowed 
also in order to bring the carbon. That's his suggestion. He says it's a din, it's a kalvachimer, it's a svara. Makes no sense to say otherwise. You can't exclude any uh, of the so-called prohibitions because all of them would are are uh, lower down the scale than the prohibition of shechita. Amalei Rabbi Yeshua, so Rabbi Yeshua said to Rabbi Yezer, I don't agree with you. He says, what you're saying is not logical. Yom Tov because the Yom Tov day, it proves to you that you're wrong. It must be that you're wrong. Why? Shehitiru bai mishum malacha. There's many things which you're allowed to do, which are a malacha. For example, you're allowed to cook, which you're not allowed to do on Shabbos, but you can on Yom Tov cook because of Echel Nefesh, but that doesn't mean you're suddenly allowed to do all the other Isurei Dirabonah on Yom Tov. All the other rabbinic prohibitions don't get brushed aside because you're allowed to cook on Yom Tov. So it could be there is, there are, there is a parallel situation which, from which we can learn where a Torah-level prohibition has been brushed aside, namely cooking, and nevertheless... The um, rabbinic level prohibitions have not been brushed aside and they are still forbidden on Yom Tov. So Rabbi Yeshua dismissed the idea that the aspects of Karbonus, which are kind of marginal to the main event, which is Shechita, sprinkling blood is Shavus. Cleaning of the intestines is Shavus. All of the aspects of the Karbon, which are Shavus, I mean, why would you, why would you suggest that, uh, that's what Rebeliezer said, why would you suggest that you can't do them? You could do them because they're all lower down the scale than Shechita. So Rebbe Yeshua, it's not the case because we have Yom Tov, and Yom Tov, things which are lower down the scale, are still forbidden, and yet you can cook on Yom Tov. Now, why is this important? These are called Machshirim. Machshirim are the aspects of a carbon which are not directly related to the the carbon itself. What's the carbon? The carbon is shechita. When I shech the animal, I've, I've brought the carbon. All the other aspects come afterwards, and that being the case, they are the machshirin. You might think that machshirin are, um, are equal in terms of their importance, even if they are lower down the scale in terms of their prohibition when it relates to Shabbos. So there is this discussion between Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Yezer as to whether machshirin can be folded in to Shechita, or whether they can't be folded into Shechita. I'm not going to go into all the details, because Ryakov Emden goes into very, very great detail when it comes to this particular discussion. But he wants to suggest a yesoid, a principle based on this discussion in the Mishnah. And that is, according to Rabbi Yaakov Emden, the memory lapse of the B'nai Seirah was not actually about whether one could bring a carbon itself, the carbon Pesach on Shabbos. Of course they knew that you can bring a carbon Pesach on Shabbos. They remembered that. What they had forgotten was whether all the aspects, all the other aspects of bringing carbonus that broke Shabbos laws could also be done on Shabbos when it is with reference to a carbon Pesach. If Erev Pesach falls on Shabbos, can all those other aspects be folded into the Shechita because the Shechita is at a higher level of prohibition? That they couldn't remember. So Rabbi Yaakov Endon wants to suggest that this was the lapse of memory of the Bnei Becerra. Hillel demonstrated that a carbon Tomid is the same as carbon Pesach, which means that the same rules apply to both. And as one can break the laws of Shabbos for carbon Tomid, one can also break the laws of Shabbos 
for a carbon Pesach, even for tangential aspects of the carbon. That's what Hillel suggested. Hillel, don't forget, was more lenient, but we don't know how far he took that law. We don't know exactly how far he took it, and we're going to see that there's actually a difference between a carbon Tomid and a carbon Pesach, and a carbon Musaf and a carbon Pesach, and it could be because we don't have all the details of this story that that particular element of the story is left out, and we're left with some uh, um, uncertainty as to whether Machshirim are folded in or are not folded in. Was Hillel simply saying that Tom, whatever you can do with Tomid, you can do with Pesach, but we don't actually know what you can do with Tomid and what you can't do with Tomid. We're not given the full picture. But that, says Rabbi Yaakov Emden, cuts to the core. And you see what's so interesting, that this debate didn't end with Hillel and Bnei Becerra. It continued, it reverberated for future generations of the sages of the Talmud. And it continued among those sages in the generations that followed Hillel. So we know that um, Hillel was followed by his son, Reb Shimon, who had a son called Rabban Gamliel Hazokain, who had a, 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 a son called Reb Shimon Gamliel. He was one of the Haruge Malchus, he was killed, who had a son called Rabban Gamliel. So we're now talking about four generations later. We know that at that time was the discussion of Rabbi, of Rabbi Yoshua and Rabbi Yezer, and the debate still raged. So it could be that they knew the basic halacha, and it could be that there was, I mean, it's hardly surprising. Beishama and Beishilo disagreed on so many things. It's certainly possible that these things continued to be debated even after the destruction of the Beishamikdash as to whether Machshirim are included or whether they're excluded in terms of Chilul Shabbos or as to what would be permitted uh, with regard to the prohibitions of Shabbos in terms of bringing the Korban Pesach when Erev Pesach falls on Shabbos. Now, Let's deal with the other aspect of this story, which Rabbi Yaakov Emden found so puzzling, which is how the Bnei Basir on Hillel related to each other. What was the story here? What was actually going on? He says a chiddish, and he actually, in his sefer, in this Jush Pesach Godel, he must have, when he gave the drosh in 1730, he must have clapped like this and was said, I have a big chiddush for you. Don't get angry with me. What I'm about to say might sound offensive. It may even get you upset, but it's not what I'm, I'm, I mean to say. I don't want to be controversial. Not that Rabbi Yaakov Emden minded being controversial, but in his sefer he says, I'm not saying this to be controversial. I'm simply trying to understand a puzzle, something that makes no sense on the face of it. And in order to do that, he actually... Um, he made a fascinating historical point, an observation that I've already mentioned and alluded to, but which he gives full voice to. The Bnei despite being the leaders of Klal Yisrael, rabbinic leaders of Klal Yisrael, had made a conscious decision not to live in Eretz Yisrael and not to live in Yerushalayim. And the reason he gives... I'm not going to go into the details of it now. Is it because they wanted to avoid on Yomim Toivim bringing a Korban Chagiga. And if you don't live in Eretz Yisrael, you don't have to bring a Chagiga. The Chagiga, it, in fact, even a Korban Pesach, the laws of Korban Pesach are that if you live in Eretz Yisrael, you must bring a Korban Pesach. But if you don't live in Eretz Yisrael, you don't have to bring a Korban Pesach. You don't have to bring a Korban. What do you do on Seder night? That's another discussion. But the law of bringing a Korban Pesach is only chal, only applies 
If you live in Eretz Yisrael, if you live in Yerushalayim, if you are there, you have to bring it. Now, the Bnei Basira, as we heard, lived in Bavel. They lived in Netzivim. And if they lived in Netzivim, they had no Chiv to bring a Chagiga, they had no Chiv to bring a Korban Pesach. And therefore, by living outside the country, they avoided, they evaded that particular religious responsibility. But that comes as a price. What's the price? The price is that they weren't that familiar with the halachas. Because these are practical halachas, and they couldn't refer, I made the joke earlier of, send them to the Mishnah Brewer. They didn't have a Mishnah Brewer in those days. They didn't have a Gemara. They didn't even have a Mishnah. They had nothing. All they had was their memory. How did people paskin halacha? By doing shimush at the Gedoyle Hador. Who did shimush at the Godel Hador? At the Gedoyle Hador? Hillel. Did they do? Did Yerihuda ben Masera, was he Meshamesh? No, he wasn't. He was from a very distinguished rabbinic family. And there were an absolute range of halachas that he was extremely familiar with. All those halachas that applied to him living in Chutzlaretz. He's astounded, Rabbi Yaakov Emden says, any Chacham Leiv, anybody who's a scholar, who appreciates what it means to be a Godel Hador, at a time when the Beis Hamikdash was standing, for the Gedoyle Hador not to live in Eretz Yisrael so that they can avoid this responsibility because they live too far to bring these Karbonas. It's an astounding, it's a stunning piece of information. But there was a net result. There was a consequence of that. Amai loy istar lohu be'eret Yisrael. Why did they not live in Eretz Yisrael? Bizman Yisrael yoshmen al admoson. How is it possible? that they chose not to live in Eretz Yisrael when the Jewish people had hegemony over the land of Israel. It's a question we should all ask ourselves if we don't live in Eretz Yisrael. Today, when we have Jewish control of Eretz Yisrael, how is it possible that we live in Chutzlaretz? How is it possible that Gedoli Yisrael choose not to live in Eretz Yisrael? It's a question we have to deal with. It's not a, there's no simple answer. And when we were in Golis, of course, it makes perfect sense that people wanted to not live in Eretz Yisrael because they wanted to still be in that element of Golis where they were away from the land of Israel. But from the moment the Jewish people has control over the land of Israel, to avoid living in, the, in Eretz Yisrael or to say that somehow it's forbidden and that it's wrong to do it, that it's, uh, it's wrong to participate in Kibbutz Golias. That makes no sense. And for the, and for the Bnei Basera, they had hundreds of years, the Jewish people had been in charge of the Beis Amikdash. There was a brief period of time when Antiochus and his wicked Jewish helpers took over the Beis Amikdash and put idols there. And there were other moments in Jewish history which were shaky, like in the time of Yochanan Kohen Gadol, in the time of, uh, during the period of the Hashmanoim kingdom. But at the time of the Bnei Basera, who was in control of the Beis Hamikdash? The Perushim, the Sanhedrin, the Nasi, the Rasha Bezdin. They were in charge of the Beis Hamikdash. How is it possible that you don't live there? How is it possible that you don't live in Eretz Yisrael? This is what Yaakov Emden says. Um, my time, Eretz Yisrael, 
Do you know why they didn't live there? I'm, I'm unhappy that I have to report what Rabbi Yaakov Emden says. They deliberately didn't want to live there because they wanted to avoid the responsibilities of Korban Pesach and other aspects of Korbanus on Shalish Regalim. They were the heads of, they should have been the heads of the Sanhedrin. They were the great rabbis of the generation. How is it possible that they remained in Chutzla Oretz, they remained in the Tzivim, or whatever it is that they lived in Bovel, if they were Gedoyle Hadar? So now we're getting some sense of what Hillel was saying. But let me just, let me just put it together for you. The Bnei B'Pesera had left Yerushalayim and moved to Chutzla Oretz to get out of bringing these Korbanos, Chagiga, Pesach, and Rabbi Emden explains that when they decided one year, one year they made a decision, we're coming for Pesach. And they believed that the halacha was that machshirim were forbidden if Erev Pesach coincided with Shabbos. That was their belief. And it's now the 13th of Nisan, it's Friday. You've got to make a decision. But others disagreed with them. There were other people who lived in Yerushalayim. Remember, they may not be Nevi'im, but they are B'nai Nevi'im. And they know halacha. And they're saying, B'nai Becerra. Zikne Becerra, you don't know what you're saying. I mean, we, we hate to argue with you. You're the Gedoyle Hadar, and yet you don't know what you're saying. Because they lived in Yerushalayim. And they were lead, the, but they, uh, the leading rabbis of the time, the Bnei Becerra, had a difference of opinion with the people who lived in Yerushalayim. So they got a little upset and they said, come on, there must be somebody who knows the answer to the question. They needed to clarify matters. They needed to consult someone of great stature who lived in Yerushalayim. And that person, ironically, turned out to be none other than Hillel Habavli, Hillel Hazoke, who had come from Chutzlaritz, who had come in the other direction. He came from Bovel to Yerushalayim. Why? Because he wanted to study under Shmai and Avtalyon. He wanted to study the feet of the Gedoyle Hador, who were presiding over the Sanhedrin and who were involved in the activities and the affairs, the religious affairs of Klal Yisrael and particularly in the Beis HaMikdosh. The Bnei Becerra thought, thought, um, thought Hillel would back them up. Oh, he went to Shmai and Avtalyon and we are also great rabbis. Surely he's going to back us up. And when he didn't, they realized that their leadership position of the religious leadership of Klal Yisrael was untenable. And they immediately pointed Hillel as the Nasi. That's an incredible admission. Shows you that they were very great people. Because usually great people are, are not objective when they are the subjects of criticism. And yet they were able to rise above this fray, this moment of time when they were criticized, or when they got something wrong and appoint the man who got it right, Hillel Habavli, to be the Nasi of the Sanhedrin. And Hillel didn't rebuke them to be rude, but to make the point that if you move away from the center of action, then you are likely to get into these situations. Rather, like him, you need to move towards the center of action. You always need to be in the center of activity so that you keep your finger on the pulse and like him, as somebody who was a Meshamesh of Shmai Naftalion, who did Shimush at the two Gedoyle Hadar, he knew the answer right away and could resolve the situation. In fact, says Toysfus Rid, it's a fascinating Toysfus, and it's based on the Yerushalmi, 
והלא אי אפשר לשני שבועי שלא יאכל ארבעוסה בשבס. ולומה נלמה, he says it's not possible that there's, there would be two times, that two periods of time, two sevens as it were, of Pesachs, and that there wouldn't be an Erev Pesach that falls on Shabbos. How is it possible that they forgot? How is it possible they had this lapse of memory? How could the Bnei Basir have got it so wrong or not been able to get it right? Says Tois Fusrit, Kadei Litein Gudula Lehillel. This was a pivotal moment that was required in order for Hillel to become the Nossi of the Sanhedrin. So they had this lapse of memory. Perhaps Toysus is implying that God deliberately made them forget. And that's why it says, not just Shochachu, they forgot. Lo yodu, it's as if they'd never known it. They never knew the halacha. They, they should have known the halacha, but they were in a situation of lo yodu. They had absolutely no concept of it. Why? Says Toysfus Rid. Because it uh, was in order to enable Hillel to ascend to the leadership position. Let me read you the Me'iri. I've translated it into English. You can take a look at it in your source sheet. The story is told in the Talmud about the Bnei Basir and the Nasim, who were the Nasim at that time, the religious leaders of uh, he says, Be'eret Yisrael in the land of Israel. He doesn't quite agree with Yaakov Emden's version of events. They were the leaders in Torah teaching. And it says that they once forgot whether the Korban Pesach takes precedence over Shabbos or not. Is this doubt, asks the Emiri, as presented to us in the Gemara, simply as it seems, or is there some secret soid that is hidden within it? Did the Bnei Basira really forget how to derive the law using the normal methods that we use, Talmudic exegesis, had they forgotten? They need to rely on somebody else. Couldn't they have come up with the Gzereshavah? Couldn't they remember the Gzereshavah that they were taught? Couldn't they uh, have come up with a logical deduction like a Kalvachomer? Did they really need to go and seek the Halachadi, Gedoyle Hadar? Clearly, they were forced into this doubt by someone. And the person is not named. Miri doesn't tell us who it is, but we've speculated that it was the people living in Yerushalayim at the time who argued against whatever the practice was, and therefore the Bnei Basira could not give a conclusive psak, a conclusive legal ruling. The Bnei Basira were very embarrassed by the fact that they were uh, in this situation, and they asked if there was anyone who knew whether the Korban Pesach takes precedence over the Shabbos or not. In other words, whether there was anyone who knew how to respond to this interlocutor, this fellow who was arguing with them, with conclusive arguments from the Torah, with conclusive proof that the halacha was one way or another, whether via analysis, in other words, whether it was a kalvachoymer or parallel biblical text, for example, as we've said, Shavah, or any testimony about an existing tradition, what we call eduyot, edios. There's a whole mesechta of edios. Can somebody say definitively, this is the way we pass in the halacha? And they were told that there was a certain fellow, a man, who'd come from Bovel, who's called Hillel Habavli, who'd studied under the two greatest sages, Shmai and Aftalion, and perhaps he knew something about this situation and could answer the question, whatever the question it was that was posed. And they sent for Hillel and he came and they asked him, does the Korban Pesach supersede Shabbos? And he said to them, it's not only the Korban Pesach, there's more than 200 Korbanos, Psochim that are brought every year, by which he meant the Shabbos Kvasim, as we've said, 
and they are similar to Passover sacrifice, of which there are four brought every Shabbos. There's two Musafim and there's two Tomids. And they said, did we not say that we would have hope from you? But where do you know this from, they said. So they heard him say what he said, but they weren't satisfied that Hillel really knew. They said, oh, he's just coming up with it. How does he know? And he proceeded to expound the law using a Kalva Choymer and using the Gzeres Shove that we mentioned in the Gemara and Psochim that I've read. And the Me'iri is now going to use the parallel text that I mentioned earlier, the Yerushalmi. It's, they were not happy with those two proofs. In fact, it's possible that they disproved them, that they had counter-arguments which are not mentioned. And the piece that I'm about to quote to you is not from Talmud Bavli. It's from the Yerushalmi. It's in Psochim. It's in Psochim Vav Aleph. And we're going to read you the Gemara in a minute. But even though, says the Eri, that they argued, uh, that he argued with them all day, and now we have an understanding of what the Gemara says in Psochim, he wasn't arguing with them. He wasn't saying halachas all day. He was arguing with them about his Psach, about a Koran Pesach on Erev Shabbos. And they were disagreeing with him. They didn't accept him from, from him until he said, I'm going to read you the words in the Yerushalmi. Yovoyolai, whatever happens to me is going to happen. Kach shomati mishmayev avtalion. I'm absolutely certain. If I'm so sure about it, I must have heard it from Shmaya and avtalion. Kivun sheshomu mimenu kain. And when he said it with such confidence that as a result of his conviction that this was the halacha, whether it was the Kalvachoymer or the Gzereshove, it made no difference. He knew in his kishkas, he knew absolutely in his core that this was the halacha. He said, there's only one way I'm so confident. There's only way I can have such conviction that this is the halacha. I must have heard it from Shmaya Naftalian. That became the source of their confidence in him to choose him to become the Nossi over them. The Miri sayings that the Bnei B'Seira knew that Korban Pesach actually is something that you can do on Erev Pesach if it falls on Shabbos. They knew it, but they didn't know, no. They knew, but they didn't know. They couldn't prove it, and this frustrated them, which was why they summoned Hillel, why they brought Hillel into the equation. They were the greatest rabbis at the time. Why would they bring so-called a junior rabbi into the into the situation, and he attempted to prove it to them using various riots that he had, proofs that he came up with, but they weren't happy with them. They didn't accept those logical proofs, and in the end they only accepted it because he was somebody who had done Shimush at Shmaya Naftalion. And he had such confidence that the halacha was that way that he could say, it must be that I know this halacha from Shmaya Naftalion. He changed his story, as it were, to a, an edious version, a testimony form of paskining the halacha. I know the halacha is this way because I have a narrative that I can relate to, which is that I was Meshamesh Shmaya Naftalion. This happened many times before, and it's nothing to do with it. There's logical proofs, but it's nothing to do with that. Shmaya Naftalion paskin this way. I'm the next link in the chain. I come after Shmaya Naftalion, and therefore it was obvious that they had to choose him to be the Nossi of the Sanhedrin. I'm going to miss out source number nine. You can take a look at the Pnei Yeshua. He says something similar to Rabbi Yaakov Emden, which is interesting because he came the generation before Rabbi Yaakov Emden. He died in the 1750s. Rabbi Yaakov Emden died in the 1770s. He was roughly 20 years older 
than Rabbi Yaakov Emden. And it's not clear to me when he wrote this, but it's possible that Rabbi Yaakov Emden never heard it from him and independently came up with more or less the same idea that the Pnei Yeshua came up with. But look at what the Pnei Yeshua has to say in source number nine. I want to read you Rabbi Yitzhak Specter, and then we're going to leave it. Even though there's other sources, they more or less relate to the same idea that Rabbi Yitzhak Achonon Specter comes up with. He comes up with it in Shailas Tshuvas Ber Yitzchak Arachayim Yudalad base. You can look it up and he talks about this idea of Korban Tzibur. Right at the beginning of the Shir, I mentioned the fact that the Korban Tomid and the Korban Musaf is like a Korban Pesach. But that's not so clear. Why? Because the Korban Tomid is a Korban Tzibur. What does that mean? It's a community sacrifice. No individual brings it. It's brought on behalf of the entire community by a coin, but the coin is the representative of the community. So too, the carbon Musaf. It's not brought by an individual. It's not an individual, it's not a personal carbon that I would bring or you would bring. It's a carbon that's brought on our behalf by a coin in the Beis HaMikdosh. What's a carbon Pesach? A carbon Pesach is different, you would think. It is a carbon uh, Yochid. It is something that only an individual brings. Now, that person may bring it on behalf of a group, of a Chabura, but they're all individuals involved in that Chabura for whom the Korban Pesach is brought by an agent. But it's not a Korban Tzibur, or so you would think. Rabbi Yitzhak Specter was an incredible Rav. He was the Robin Kovna. He was the first, I would say, international Pesach, first person who really, in the modern era, could be given that title of a Pesach Hador. Everybody turned to him from all over the world. There was this great exodus from Eastern Europe to uh, Western Europe and to South Africa and to North America and South America. And he answered Shilas from every single location. He became uh, the headquarters of Halocha, even though he lived in Kovna in Lithuania. And he, he was an incredible, uh, an incredible Poisek, but also an incredible um, explainer of different concepts and ideas when it comes up in Halocha. And sometimes Lomdus in the Gemara, but more specifically Halocha. This is what he says about the Korban Pesach in answer to our question about this Bnei Basera story and how they could have forgotten this basic Halocha or what it is that they forgot. And this, in fact, was the, this was the, um, difficulty that was encountered by the Bnei Basera. They went by Shani, and it was a time when it was only Shnei Shvatim. Most of the Jewish people were in Bavel. And now you have an interesting situation. What is the situation? Most of the Jewish people were in Bavel. Perhaps you could say that the din is, the halacha is, that because most of the Jewish people don't live in Eretz Yisrael, even though there's two shvatim who do live in Eretz Yisrael, maybe there's no din of korban tzibur that would push away the halachas of Shabbos. The davka b'midbar shahoyu kolat tzibur b'yachat. Maybe when they were in the wilderness, the time under Moshe Rabbeinu, there they could do it. Even if Erev Pesach was on Shabbos, why? 
because the, everybody was there. You could say that it was a Korban Sibur, Korban Pesach, because they were all there, they're all there together, they're all bringing it together, even though it's a Korban Yochid, it's a Korban that has the status of Sibur because everyone is bringing it together. But at the time of Bayesheni, as we've already said, most of them were not there. They were in Chutzlaretz. They weren't even involved in bringing the Korban Pesach. It's only a minority of the Jewish people that when you were Shalai and bringing the Korban Pesach. Maybe the din is that it's not a Korban Sibur. Or maybe, and this was the suffake that the Bnei Basera had, maybe it is a Korban Sibur. Even though Raiv Klali Yisrael don't live in Eretz Yisrael, maybe we still treat Korban Pesach based on its original format. Maybe we do treat it as a Korban Sibur. I'll call Ponim call Yisrael the Be'eretz Yisrael Heima Bnei Because the majority of the people who, are living, who live in Eretz Yisrael are bringing Korban Pesach. All the people are Bnei Chiyuva. And therefore, they are all bringing it. So everybody does in Eretz Yisrael, and you go boss arrive in that Mokkaim. You don't go boss arrive uh, over the, including the diaspora. And that being the case, it is a carbon Sibur. So you have this suffix between whether it is a carbon Sibur or it isn't a carbon Sibur, and therefore, whether or not it's Deich Shabbos, because a carbon Sibur would be Deich Shabbos, but a non carbon Sibur wouldn't be Deich Shabbos. Ukamai hab dahiriyais the Amar of Asi the Bahira. And there we have a Gemara in Horeus which tells us that when it comes to Paskini Halacha, we always go according to those who live in Eretz Yisrael. Kapirish Rashi Shaman, as Rashi explains over there, When it comes to Halachas to do with Eretz Yisrael, you don't Paskin like those who live in Chutzah Oretz because obviously they don't keep it because they don't live there. But when it comes to a halacha that relates to the live ones living in Eretz Yisrael, you're passing according to those, the Rav Minyan, that they live in Eretz Yisrael, obviously passing like them. So if everybody in Eretz Yisrael is bringing the carbon Pesach, it becomes like a carbon Sibur, and that being the case, it is Doiche Shabbos Fa'alzeh HaSofik Bo'Hilel V'Koposhat Luhu of Potar Lohem. And that's what Hillel said. Hillel said, absolutely, you treat it like a carbon Sibur, you don't treat it like a carbon Yochid, and therefore the halachas what, what was he saying? Are just like the carbon tomid, which is a carbon sibur, and not like a carbon yochid, because Rav of Klalisra live in or it's, it's still treated like a carbon sibur. It's like the tomid, it's like the musaf, it's like as if there are 200 psochim that are brought during the J- uh, Jewish calendar year, over 50 Shabbosis. That was the message that Hillel wanted to give um, based on what he'd heard from Shmai Naftalian, based on his Kalvachoyme, based on his Gezerah Shoveh. And the Bnei Becerra had no choice but to choose him to be the leader of Klalistral, to be the Nossi of the Sanhedrin. And that's where the story uh, ended, or you might say, that's where the story began. We'll leave it here. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you so much for listening.